Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. God, we're thankful how you just gather up your people uh, to look to you. And as we continue to explore different practices that are just pathways for us to experience the transforming power of your grace, God, we, we know that it's just not in us to be to be as disciplined as we need to be, and, and we want to rest in, in the gospel that you were the ultimate one who disciplined yourself to the point of death on a cross that we could have life. So God, let that be our motivation. Let that be our strength um, to develop these practices um, of drawing closer to you. God, your name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you have seen the movie Trolls. If you have young kids, chances are you have. If not, maybe you just enjoy um, a good movie. But in the movie Trolls, um, you have this tree that's filled with the most happy creatures ever. And then in contrast to, to these colorful, happy trolls, you have Bergens. And Bergens are miserable, unhappy Things and, and they believe that they can only be happy once a year during trollstice, where they would go to the tree where the trolls lived, take a troll and eat a troll, and that would provide them this short burst of happiness where they would have to wait another year. Well, one year during trollstice, the head chef of the Bergens is leading the festivities. They, they go to the tree. They're going to, to give a troll to the, the king's young son so he can experience the, the joy that comes from it. And when they pluck the troll off, they come to find out that it's fake, it's wooden, and that all the trolls have escaped. The video you know, angle cuts to below the surface where you see the trolls are walking through these tunnels or running through these tunnels, and all the Bergens are trying to, to find them and to catch them. There's a close call, but Grand Peppy, who's, who's the king of the trolls and leading the charge, is able to keep his promise of no trolls left behind. They escape and live in the forest. Well, 20 years go by, and Grand Peppy is getting old. Poppy, his, his princess daughter, is, is now older, and she's kind of leading the charge. And she wants to celebrate the day of liberation. She wants to celebrate the day they escaped and when they found their freedom. But because she's the happiest of these happy creatures, she can't just throw a little mixer. It's got to be the biggest, the loudest, the craziest party ever. And, and so there's lights and there's thumping loud music and glitter bombs. And when the bass drops, it's like Chernobyl, right? Like it's boom as things go on. They're having this amazing party, but it's so big and it's so spectacular that the Bergens are able to see it. And they're tipped off to the location of the trolls. And so they go and raid the camp, capturing a bunch of the trolls, ruining the party. And then Poppy has to set out on this mission to, to, to find her friends and to set them free. But she needs some help. So her help comes in the form of Branch. Now, Branch is not a happy troll. He's completely dark and colorless. He's depressed looking and just not a fun person to be around, but that's all she's got. So Poppy, the happiest, like nothing's going to get me down. And Branch, the person who doesn't really even want to pursue life, set off on this mission to, to rescue their friends. 
Well, eventually, as, as happy as Poppy is, she, she finds her hope fading, and, and they, they sing to each other, and it's this beautiful hug moment. Um, but you see, like, her color begins to fade until there's a resurgence, and I won't spoil the rest of the movie for you. Um, but as I watch this movie, part of me, because I'm weird, thinks about church culture, right? Like, no one, everyone else is like, What? church culture. Um, But what I think about is, man, do we ever feel the pressure as Christians to to act like Poppy, where we feel like we have to be excited and happy all the time because Jesus makes everything better. And so whether life is horrible or not, we're just trying to put on that Ned Flanders, like, happy-to-do-dah, like, day, this is a good day to be alive face. And, and, And what happens, though? Right? When we feel like we have to put that face on, what happens when life feels mundane? Or what happens when life even falls apart? When life is just ordinary, do you ever feel like the color of your faith begins to fade? Have you ever felt like, man, like I'm not experiencing this mountaintop high. I'm not experiencing the nearness of God. Have you ever found just life kind of just being day-to-day and, and simple and not exciting? And, and what happens? Is your faith built to survive in that type of environment? You see, if we want to feel God's presence... Right? Like it's, it's easy for us to feel God's presence when we're singing loud with a bunch of friends and every word comes off of our lips and connects to our heart. It's easy to feel God's presence when, when you listen to a sermon and it feels like it was crafted just for you. But it's not as easy to feel God's nearness when life is ordinary. But is it possible to experience God's presence in the small seemingly insignificant parts of our day and week? Like, is, it, is it possible to experience God's presence when you're doing mindless things like mowing the yard, driving to work, or just sitting down for five minutes to decompress and unwind? Well, if we want to grow deep roots where our faith can thrive when spiritual highs are far and few between, then we have to cultivate practices that have shaped the church for nearly 2,000 years. Disciplines rooted in word and prayer and the gathering of God's people. Practices that are meant to anchor our hearts in the truths of the gospel. And that's what we're exploring this August. Last week, we looked at um, having God's ear through the practice of prayer. And today, we're going to talk about hearing his voice through the practice of reading scripture. All right? So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Some, some real quick context to this letter. It's written by Paul. Paul writes most of the New Testament, and he's in prison. He's about to face his death, and these are basically his last words. He's writing to Timothy, who is almost like a son to him, and he wants to pass the torch of his ministry on to his son, to his, to his spiritual son. And as he's doing that, he knows that Timothy needs to be rooted in truth if he's going to endure, if he's going to run this race well and run it to completion. So in the spirit of endurance, he says this. Let's pick up in verse 14. He says, but as for you, 
talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What I want to do is look at three things from this text. One is just, what is the Bible? Two, who is the Bible about? And three, why should we read it? All right, so what's the Bible? Who's it about? And why should we read it? So what is the Bible, right? Um, in the Old Testament, you, if you read through it, you'll see this saying every now and again, and, and quite often where it'll say, thus says the Lord. And then after it says, thus says the Lord, you'll see quotation marks and it'll have a saying. And so we kind of know that when it quotes God, that within those quotations, you would say that is the word of God. All right, so in the Old Testament, when it says, thus says the Lord, that is God speaking. All right, but then you have the question of, well, what about things that aren't in quotations? Well, when, Timothy, when Paul writes to Timothy and says sacred writings in verse 15, when he says all scripture, verse 16, this, this might be hard for you to understand, but he's actually talking about the Old Testament or what we would call the Old Testament. He's not referring to the New Testament here, right? And so he's mainly referencing what we would call the Old Testament. So he says, look, everything in the Old Testament, whether it's in quotations or not, All of it is breathed out by God, and all of it is scripture, all of it is profitable, all of it is good for us. And so the first thing we see about the Bible is that all of the Old Testament, whether it's quotations or not, is seen to be the word of God. Now, the first time I heard that Paul was talking about the Old Testament here, I was like, what about the New Testament? Like, what does this mean that the New Testament isn't the word of God, or it's not God-breathed? What do we do with that? Well, before you get... Um, too concerned, flip back a little bit. Go to, go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. I, I, I believe that Paul is mainly referencing the Old Testament, but I think he's also referencing what we would call the New Testament. Look at verse 18 of chapter 5. So 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, it says, for the scripture says, so he's talking about scripture here. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Let's just stop. That is a quote from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, right? Which we would call the Old Testament, right? And, so he's, same breath here, same breath. And the laborer deserves his wages. That's a quote from Luke 10, verse 7, which is the New Testament. So Paul, referencing what he would call scripture, references in the same breath something from the Old Testament and something from the New Testament. So we see really clearly that Scripture is both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're like, but Luke is what Jesus said. It's the red letters. And so what about the non-red letter stuff? That's still Scripture. For instance, if you read um, 2 Peter 3.16, Peter is talking about his friend Paul, and he goes, have you ever tried to read Paul? This is Jeff paraphrasing. Have you ever tried to read Paul? He's hard to understand. But then he references what Paul has written and says that it's scripture, it's that the word of God. So Peter, when he reads Paul's letters, sees them to be the word of God. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 would even agree. He's like, you received from me the words to be the word of God, which is what they 
are, what they were. And so even Paul saw the stuff that he wrote to be on par with Scripture. And so what we see in these other texts along with 2 Timothy 3 is that all of Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is breathed out by God. It's true and it's trustworthy, it's authoritative, and it's meant for us to center our lives around it. All right, it's meant for us to center our lives around it. So all the Bible is the word of God. All right, so who is the Bible about? The Bible from beginning to end is primarily about Jesus. Okay, so, so what is the Bible? It's the word of God. Who is it about? From beginning to end, it's primarily about Jesus. If you were to read at the end of Luke, um, in Luke 24, you don't have to turn there, just, you can just listen. Um, but Jesus has, has died, um, he's been crucified, he's been put into the tomb, he has risen back to life, and now he's walking down this road with two guys, talking to him, they don't recognize who he is, right? and he's, he's going to explain to them something. And so they don't understand what's just happened, they're a little bit confused by the events, and in verse 25 of Luke 24, he says this, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus starts with the Old Testament and says, let me walk you through all of that. Let's go through all of the law, all of the prophets. I want to show you how every page of this has been pointing to me. And then in verse 32, I love it. It says, they, they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? There's something about reading scripture and understanding how it's pointing us to Jesus that moves our hearts. Um, in John 5, Jesus is talking to these religious leaders. And, and so to the religious leaders, he says this in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and that they bear witness. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's like, look, you guys are looking to the scripture to see what you can do for God. But scripture is not primarily about what you can do for God. It's about what God has done for you. It's about me and how faith in me leads to eternal life. So Jesus shows us that the whole Bible, right, starting with the law and the prophets, it's all about him. It's all pointing us to the person of Christ, which means it's not a collection of stories that talks about heroes. It's not a collection of moral lessons or this catalog of wisdom sayings. And, and yeah, the Bible's going to have some of those things in it. Right? But what we see is that it's a single story running cover to cover telling us about Jesus and God's plan to rescue sinners through the gospel. That means that every passage either looks forward to him and hopes in him, pointing to what only he can fix, or it looks back to him where we marvel at God's grace and grow in our gratitude for what he's done. And so as you read God's word, what it's meant to do is to constantly put Jesus before you, reminding you again and again of his presence, reminding you of his plan, reminding you of his power, and reminding you of his promises. All right, so the Bible is about Jesus. All right, so what is it? It's the word of God. Who's it about? It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And why should we read it? 
All right? When you read verses 14 through 17, you see two primary reasons. All right, two primary reasons. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The first reason we read scripture is because it makes us wise to salvation. All right, the first reason that we want to read the Bible is because there's something about it that makes us wise to salvation. So as we read it, we, we get a picture of who God is, of how holy and glorious and amazing he is. We get a picture of who we are without him, that we are sinners separated from God because of our actions against him, that we're unable to save ourselves, that we're completely hopeless, and there's nothing that we can do to bridge the gap between us and our creator. And then we see what he has done to save us, that Jesus stepped into history, stepping into our place, absorbing the wrath that we deserve, dying the death that we should have died and raising victoriously from the grave to give us and offer us eternal life. You see, the scriptures are showing us who he is, who we are without him and what he's done to save us. A way to think about it is we read scripture, we see God more holy, We see sin more vividly, and that helps us to see the cross more gloriously, right? So it makes us wise to salvation, right? It shows us the gospel. But more than just showing us how we can be saved from hell, Scripture also shapes us for a new and better life as it shows us how to be more and more like Jesus. That's why in verse 16, he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for a proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. It's, it's aiming us towards completion and wholeness as we become more and more like Jesus. What we have to realize is that our hearts naturally want to make Jesus who we want him to be instead of who Scripture has revealed him to be. Like, we love to make Jesus in our image, We love a Jesus that just looks like a better, cleaned-up version of us, where Jesus would drive the same car as us, wear the same clothes, hang out with the same people, do the same things. Like, we love Jesus to look like us, and our hearts are naturally going to make him who we want him to be instead of who Scripture reveals him to be. Our hearts also naturally want to make our desired lifestyles something that's acceptable and okay to God. But we have to realize is that our hearts are deceptive and it's scripture that aligns us with what's true. And with that being said, we might not always like what the Bible has to say. We might not always read it and go, that makes me feel warm and cozy inside, right? But what it says is always gonna give us what we truly need to enjoy the life that God has created us for. It's always gonna give us what we need to experience the fullness of what it means to be in Christ, So so what's the Bible? It's the Word of God. Who's it about? It's primarily about Jesus, and why should we read it? We should read it to know the gospel, to know what we're saved from, but also to know what we're saved for and to grow into the person that we are created to be. Look, if there's one thing to get today, especially when when we're talking about this series called Spiritual or Nutrition 101, and we're talking about the spiritual macronutrients we need, which just three things, God's Word, God's ear and God's body, like like we need 
the word of God. We need scripture as food to nourish us. So one thing is this, God's word is food that nourishes and satisfies the Christian soul. Right? Like what I want you to get from this is that God's word is food that nourishes and satisfies the Christian soul. Flip over to Matthew 4. Uh, and, and other texts, I'm just asking you to trust me that they say what they say. Uh, Matthew 4, first book in the New Testament. Right? So the Bible is 66 books written by human authors with different backgrounds, different flavors, different styles, but all writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say exactly what God wants to say. Right? Like we've, we've got half of it in the Old Testament, and Matthew gets us into the New Testament. All right? Starting in Matthew 4. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus is getting ready to start his ministry, and he goes out into the wilderness where he's going to fast. Look, verse 2, and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, which is an understatement. All right, like, like he goes out, and so he's in a physical wilderness. He's in the desert, and he's also going to be in a spiritual desert, right? So he's, he's in a vulnerable position, and then in verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, so in a vulnerable position where he is trying to grow closer to God, where he's in a position that he could easily fall away, Satan shows up to tempt him and try to pull him away from God. And this is what he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Right? He's, he's trying to pull Jesus away from his heavenly father. But Jesus answered, it is written. Right? So he's talking about scripture. Jesus knows the Bible. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's saying in the same way that you need food to feed your body with physical strength. You need the word of God to fuel your life for spiritual strength. In other words, Jesus is saying that God's word is food that nourishes and satisfies the Christian soul. But God's people, like if, you, if you read scripture about all of history, God's people are prone to try to live off of and find satisfaction in lesser things. Like we're just prone, instead of going to God's word to nourish our souls, we're prone to search for it in lesser things, right? Like if you just look at church culture, you know, we, we, we can fall into this trap where, where we just feel like people are searching for an experience. And so let's make Sunday morning something that feeds that addiction. And so we can, like I'll tell like I told the, our, our worship team this morning, I said, look, I feel like God's gifted me to speak. And, and, and me, you're like, he hasn't, right? Like, that's fine. Um, I feel like God's gifted me to speak. Um, I know that God has gifted Chris and those up here to lead us in song and worship. And with confidence, I can tell you this. If we wanted to manipulate your feelings to give you an experience, we could. If that was our aim, if that was our goal, we could do things in a very intentional, manipulative way where you would feel something and walk out of here going, that was a spiritual high. All right? And we can begin to feed ourselves with those experiential moments and begin to hope in those more than the practices that have shaped the church for 2,000 years, which are much simpler and pure of just going to God's word, spending time in prayer and gathering with his people. 
right? So we hope in lesser things. An example of this is if I love, I love the Old Testament. And so if you read First and Second Kings, you'll see that there used to be three kings where Israel was united. You had Saul, um, you know, he's kind of the first king. And then you had David, the dude that killed Goliath, and then David's son, Solomon. But after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits. Like the 12 tribes united, split. There's a north and a south. You have Israel with 10 tribes, Judah with two tribes, and now you're tuning out on me. But either way, after Solomon dies, king after king just keeps leading Israel farther and farther away from God. And some kings kind of get it right, but it's just they really quickly go back. Well, by the end of 2 Kings, in chapter 22, um, we meet this guy named Josiah. Josiah is eight years old. Right? I've got a seven-year-old daughter that's almost eight. He's eight years old, and he becomes king. You're thinking, this has gone really bad. It's about to get worse. Like an eight-year-old is like, I want cotton candy for food. Right? Like, like, they just want what they, like how, what's the king going to do? Well, fast forward. Now Josiah is 26 years old, and he's actually on the right track. And he's looking at this temple. He's looking at God's house, and he's going, this thing is run down. We need to fix it up. So he sends some guys to the treasury to get some money so he can pay Skillville and some carpenters to make things pretty and and fix it up. And in that, they get the high priest who's like, you're not going to believe this, but I found the Bible. He's like, like, and like they've lost the scriptures. Like for, for, for his whole life, he's 26 years old. He's never seen anything in the scriptures. And then the high priest is like, I kind of found something. I think it's important. And so he reads it. And so when Josiah hears the word of God being read, he tears his clothes. He's like, this is bad news. Like, like God is a just God. He's a holy God. And he deserves all of our praise. And we've settled for lesser things. And we've been running away from him. And his wrath is real. And I think it's coming. Like, this is not good. And so he gathers up all of Israel. And he's like, listen to the word of God. And they read it to the whole nation. And everyone's like, we got to do something. And so they repent and turn back to God. Right? Like they lost it, and when they found it, it changed the nation for a brief time. Right? Then they go back to their pattern of, of hoping and searching for satisfaction in lesser things. But when I read that story, I'm like, how do you lose the Bible? But then you see the beauty of when it's brought back, when the dust is blown off, and we get into it, and to see God's heart for us. And and so I tell that story because maybe you're here today, and if you're being honest, you've just lost your love for God's Word. Like your Bible's sitting on a shelf collecting dust. It's like in the back of your car, and it's bent up and sun-withered, and you bring it out on Sunday mornings. Like, where is that thing? All right, you're not going to bring it anymore. You're like, I'll just use my phone. right, and so maybe, maybe you're here, and you're like, if I'm being honest, I've just lost a love for God's Word. Or maybe, I mean, Josiah was 26 years old and never had heard it. Maybe it's just something you've never discovered in the first place. Maybe it's something that you've never even known. Right? Well, the good news is that no matter where you are today, there's a pathway forward for you to encounter the beauty of Christ through the practice of hearing God's voice. There's a pathway forward, no matter where you are, to begin to encounter the beauty of Christ with this pathway of hearing God's voice through Scripture. So how do we get started? How do we get started? I want to reference one more verse to you. I feel like I've Bible drilled you to death today, which is fine. It's good for you. Um, So you don't have to turn there, but if you want to, Ezra 7.10. Ezra 7.10. This is a really cool story. After Josiah dies and 
Babylon shows up and conquers Israel. Um, the Persians show up onto the scene and Cyrus the Great's like, you can go home. And so there's this movement between Ezra and Nehemiah where they, they reestablish the temple, they reestablish God's law, and they refortify the city. And it's a, it's a cool, cool story. But Ezra's the, the main priest. Like his goal is I'm supposed to lead God's people in worship and I'm supposed to help them shape their lives to be the people God's created them to be. All right, and so in Ezra chapter seven, he gives us a pattern that's a pattern for all believers throughout all time on how we should approach God's word. All right, so this is a pattern that this is what he did, but it's also something for us to learn from. Verse 10, chapter seven, it says this, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules or God's law to all of Israel. All right, so, so there are three things that we can do. If you're like, how do I get started on this pathway to, to hearing God's voice through his word? The first thing is it says he set his heart to study God's word. All right, we'll, we'll give you three Ps, plan, right? Like get a plan in place. And I know that sounds easier than it probably is, but I would say just get a plan. And, and so if you're going to plan out how to be in God's word, just t- pro tip of the day, start small. Like, don't be the hero. You're like, I'm going to read the whole Old Testament um, this week. You know, they actually show that the average American watches about 71 hours of TV um, over the, you know, I don't know if that's a week or two week. But either way, like, you can read the whole Bible in a little over 70 hours. So, like, in the time that you would spend watching TV for two weeks, you could basically read the whole Bible. But I'm not saying for you to do that. Um, Start small. Set a timer. Like, you know, sit down. Like, you know, I'm going to put a timer on for five minutes. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start, and, and also I'm going to say, I wouldn't start in Genesis. Like, start in a gospel like Mark, all right? Or, or just start, start in Matthew 8 and just read some of these stories. We get a plan, like, I'm, I'm going to read for five minutes. And when that timer goes off, I'm just going to kind of walk away. Um, but get a plan, like, hey, this is what I'm going to read. Set a time. This is when I'm going to read it. And, and, and this is for how long. But kind of make a plan that you think is doable. Set yourself up for success. Like, I remember, like, I don't know if any of you have dogs, like, when I, I've got a 150-pound Newfoundland, and he doesn't smell food on the counter. He looks at it. He's like, I see that. <laughs> He's like staring at it on the counter. And so what we've learned is we can keep food out, and he will eat it, and he'll get in trouble, or we can set him up for success by putting food away. We can leave the trash can unlocked and in the middle of the night come downstairs to like everything scattered across where he's like destroyed it or we can lock it and set him up for success. Like there's something about setting your dog up for success that makes it more enjoyable, right? And so I would say this, set yourself up for success. You know, start with something that you know you can do. Get a plan that you know you can stick to. So the first thing is if you set your heart to study God's word, just find a plan that you know is gonna work for you. Next thing, it says that he, he did it. And I love that he did God's word before he taught it to others. He wasn't like, do as I say, not as I do. Like he, he was practicing it first. So the, the next thing I would say is after you plan, as you read God's word, just pick one thing to think about for the day. Just pick one thing to ponder and to meditate on and to ask God, what would it look like for me to apply this to my life? Just pick one thing. And so as you, maybe you just did it for five minutes and you walk away and you're like, I'm just going to think about this thing. And then throughout the day, just carry that with you. 
The other morning I was reading and and, uh, me and Ruthie are going through Luke's Luke right now together. That's my daughter that could be king apparently. Um, And so, so we're going through Luke and we're reading about loving your enemies. And I was talking about the difference between like doing unto others what you want them to do to you versus just not doing. And so we're talking about this is active. This is something we want to do. And so that morning on her hand, I wrote the word do. And then I put a smiley face with it. And we talked about how, you know, hey, throughout the day, remember that we want to do to others as we want them to do to us. And wouldn't you like it if people were smiling at you all day? Isn't that like a better, like, wouldn't that make your school a better place if just people smiled more? And so for her that day to take that with her, it was like, hey, I want to do to others as I want them to do to me. And, and a simple way I can put that into practice is just to smile at people more. So just pick one thing and take it with you. So plan, pick something to, to apply, and then pay it forward. The next thing we see is that he taught others. If scripture is ultimately about Jesus and helping you to know Jesus more, help others to know Jesus as well. You see, the ultimate goal is that we'd fall more in love with Jesus. Let me wrap up with this. When Lucy and I first got engaged, there was this old couple in their 80s, Harry and Eloise Davis, and they were so amazing. They took us under, under their wing, and they had this awesome, like, when you think of over the rivers, through the woods, to grandma's house we'd go, that was their house. And, um, and they had this screened-in back porch that, that they would invite us to. And, and we'd go to their house for dinner, dessert, and decaffeinated coffee, because that's what they do in Georgia. No caffeine after dark. So like deca- and we would sit down on this back porch, and, and seeing Harry and Eloise, it's one thing to intellectually be like, two become one. It's another thing to see a couple that's ran that to completion, where you go, that's what it looks like. To talk to Harry is to talk to Eloise. To talk to Eloise is to talk to Harry. They are one. And so knowing that they have ran the race well, knowing that's what marriage should look like, I remember asking them, hey, how do we do this? <laughs> like, how do we, we want to be old and on a screened in back porch with some young bucks and teaching them, like, what do we do? And I remember Harry said, always ask Lucy to tell you something that you don't know about her. And here they are in their 80s, and as they have their dates, they will still ask the question, tell me something that I don't know about you yet. And they saw that knowledge of each other, a growing knowledge, as one of the keys to having a lasting, long, deep, loving marriage. You see, we want to come to Scripture to know God more, to love Him more. So what would it look like for you this week to open up God's word and just pray a prayer? God, teach me something I don't know about you. And then to dive in to know Jesus more so you can love him better. God, thank you for your word. We know that you have gifted us just a direct line of communication from, from you to us, from the creator of the universe to your creation. And it's this incredible love story, all about Jesus and how he's come to pursue and to rescue sinners like us. And within every page, we see how amazing you are. God, we want to know you more and love you more. God, help us to be a people who are a people after your heart. Help us be a people who aren't just making you to be who we want you to be, but who truly know you through how you revealed your heart to us through scripture. God, let it speak powerfully to us and change us and help it to make us more like your son. It's your name we pray, amen. 
Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.